And, and quite frankly, back then, I didn't look at it as raising a back, you know, raising a black son, just raising the son. Thank you so much for joining us at Flesh and Bold. We're going to talk about raising black sons. And we have two very special guests, experts, if you will, our mom and dad. Are you ready to join the fam? Ooh, let's get into it. Let's hear our parents' approach to raising black sons to start off. Well, well, the my my approach was that you know again I I didn't look at race like like this is my black son and I have to teach him blackness and things like that, uh, but I had to you know I I I had to teach him just manhood, just uh, how you gonna grow up, um, what you know how to really kind of conduct yourself. Your dad. You know, I never realized he was so colorblind when his approach, at least. Yeah, I'm low key, high key, like kind of embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I'm experiencing secondhand embarrassment (laughs) from having a like 60 something black father that, as a educator around multicultural issues and social justice, (laughs) that they themselves don't really see their experience as racialized or didn't try to impart that on me. So maybe it's not just white parents. But also, I don't know how 100% true it was. Like, when I think about dad, I also think about, like, when he would be pulled over by the cops Mm. and say, it was driving while black. So maybe some of his parenting we picked up through just, like, his experience and him talking. So maybe he wasn't intentional about it. But I definitely remember him pointing to instances of racism. So I'm so I'm confused by his comment. <laughs> so maybe the learning or imparting he did was like this social learning of modeling and not like this direct, hey, I need to t- tell you these things. It was more of like we were going to learn either way through his experience. Yeah. I don't know that he did it that intentionally, but I think that was a good way <laughs> I to say agree. I agree. Um, but why even engage, I guess, in this revisionist history? Like, what? <laughs> like, to me, it's a bad look. It is. Um, do you think it could be, like, maybe... Because um, his just... The way he describes his, like, upbringing, that just as I know, it's surprising to hear the lack of racism he experienced on his account, seeing that he was what, born in the 50s? Like, I've had more racist interactions that I can count than he has. And so it makes me wonder, like, is part of it become, like, you have to numb or is his lack of awareness helpful um, in protecting him against, like, how all the pressure that he might feel from the racist society in which we live in? I don't know. I, that's me really trying to help him out. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, and maybe he thought his first job to you specifically was teaching you how to be a man. Mm. And, and in that, of course you're going to learn how to be a black man because you're, you're black. Mm. And so maybe he really thought of like, my job is to teach you how to be a man. Like, I don't know how to teach you how to be a white man. So inherently you're going to learn how to be a black man. For, for sure. Like yeah. you said. No, I like that because I, also think like 
it gets to the intersectionality piece. So yeah, no, I can dig it. Mom had a different approach though. Let's listen. definitely felt like I was raising a black son and nervous about raising a black son um, because of things that I had seen my brothers go through, my uncles go through, and I knew I had to prepare him differently than I had to prepare my black daughter. I saw the... The, mistre the mistreatment of them um, by authority. Um, and the school sense. I mean, I saw that they were academically ready, but was never pushed toward going the, going the extra step, like going to college. Um, they were always told, find a trade. And... I knew I had to guard that for my son. Um, and that started in the first grade when I had to go to Nativity and talk to a teacher. That was the second grade. Was it second? Okay. Yeah. I went twice with her. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you, I'm not going to have this. You know, if you don't like what you're doing, then you need to find another job. Unfortunately, mom's experience is not unique. Mom's experiences are similar to the experiences of other black mothers raising black sons that were highlighted in a study conducted by Joe, Schillingford Butler, and O. The article of the study is titled The Experiences of African American Mothers Raising Sons in the Context of Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Um, six themes emerge from the data that illustrated the lived experiences of African-American mothers who had been exposed to community and state violence while raising their sons. The themes were psychological distress, physical manifestations of stress, parenting behaviors, empathic isolation, coping strategies, and strengths. Uh, really, when I think about mom, those first three, I think, were really present with what mom shared. Psychological distress refers to black mothers expressing various levels of fear, anger, heartbrokenness, and exhaustion, with fear and anxiety being the most prominent. That stress oftentimes manifested physically. Basically, that means they felt like they were sick and even had um, tightness in their chest. And the black mother's parenting behaviors were also affected. They reported being on edge and overprotective in their parenting behaviors in an effort to protect their sons. This is definitely something I felt for mom all through life, actually, which is interesting because participants in the study had black sons that were as young as two. And you, Mia, have your own young black son. Does any of this hit home for you? Absolutely. Like, I definitely feel this willingness and this um, kind of guy that wants me to protect him and keep him safe and not let him leave the house. And I think most mothers feel that in general, but I definitely feel like it's amped up with all of the things that we know that happen to little black boys and black children. So, yeah, I want to I don't want him to leave my house ever. Mm -hmm. I'm curious um, because this study was really done within the context of like um, current state violence and things like that. 
is this something that exists for you always or is it only when like unfortunately um, an unarmed black man is murdered or when do you really feel this um i think because these events are happening always i feel it always mm. if there were true peaks and valleys maybe i would feel differently but i think these events always happen and like in our current day but also historically yeah. so it's like you can't really escape and i never will know a time where these events are not happening or haven't happened so i can't really i can't really say because i'm i'm always living in this constant state of past or present moment Hmm. Hmm. And so, um, I know like mom talks about it starting early on for me, which it definitely did. And I definitely knew that I was a black child being raised and that was different and meant something not as good as being a white, um, a white child, um, who was a boy. And so I'm interested in hearing like for you, is that something that you worried about early on? for your son or like when did those fears and things kind of start kicking in for you? So, you know, I had fear from probably the very first moment that I knew that I was having a black son. Mm. So before the black son even arrived? Before he even arrived. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right before then, you know, just, um, honestly, it was in the context of Trayvon Martin, Mm. but, yeah, so Trayvon Martin was killed, and I found out I was having a boy, and my worries started as soon as I found out that he was a boy, because I knew he was going to be black, so, you know, Good. it was hard. Where, how was, because I know that we've talked about this, um, and so it seems like this is supposed to be an exciting time, right? And it seems like this was also a time that was met with some fear or anxiety on your part. How was that received by the rest of your family, your friends, coworkers? Yeah, I mean, so I was a pediatric resident and I was super um, nervous. I was telling my friends and my other co-residents and colleagues that like, I was really sad, I was devastated that I was bringing into the world this black son that I knew the world really wasn't ready for and didn't want. Mm. Um, and so I felt like they, instead of saying, I understand, or I see you, Mm. I understand why you're worried. They may not be able to fully understand because a lot of them were white, but instead they said, you should be happy. This is such Mm. a great time. Mm. Like, you know, you've got everything. You've got a partner that's supportive. You've got, and I do realize that I'd had privileges, but honestly, Trevor Martin was just killed. Mm. And so to me, it was very clear, like, why I was upset and why I should be upset and why they should be upset. But instead, I feel like a lot of them moved on with their, moved on with their days, moved on with their lives while I sat and stewed and thought about um, having this boy. I had to deep sigh right there because, (laughs) I mean, obviously you're my sister and it, it hurts for me to hear when anyone kind of has this experience and they're told to feel otherwise or what they should be experiencing. And I just think of all the work we have to do. But once again, that's um, that, that actually came up in the study um, as a concept that the researchers called empathic isolation, where basically participants describe receiving little to no empathy um, or understanding from outside of the home, um, as well as sometimes these black mothers felt like 
they needed to hide their emotions at home to protect their sons. Um, and a reason for like that carrying on was because they perceived that uh, the white privilege of their coworkers and community members mm. that they wouldn't understand what was going on. And Interesting. So, yeah, it, it seemed to be found in that study and it's going on. Well, they clearly were more perceptive of it than I am. <laughs> I was like, why don't you understand? <laughs> why don't you get why I'm upset? Yeah. So those women knew something I didn't. Mm. Do you have any final thoughts about the study? Um. Well, one, you know, I'm. I feel like, just like in the words of Issa Rae, I'm for everybody black, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just think black women are incredible. And that's one thing that obviously came out in the study was the resilient nature of black women and the use of their strengths and in, in, in these contexts. And Preach. We, and we also know, which I'm sure we'll discuss at some point, um, the resilience narrative with black women and why that's awesome, how it can also be harmful. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, but I also found um, uh, another theme that I found to be bittersweet was um, one of the last themes that were identified was coping strategies. Mm -hmm. um, and so participants um, used coping strategies that included trying to maintain a positive outlook, engaging in self-care, journaling, prayer and meditation, yet few of the participants actually sought professional help. Mm. What do you mean by professional help? So, like, um, going to therapy to talk about their feelings and those experiences of stress. Mm. Um, and so they didn't go, um, the study kind of talked about, like, they didn't go for many reasons being, like, time and accessibility. Mm -hmm. What um, do you think? What else? But also, and, and they mentioned this, uh, they didn't go because um, black mothers thought, what is them going to therapy going to change the system of racism? Mm. Is it going to protect their children? And it's really not, which I think brings up a really interesting point in question, which is um, what is our role as helping professionals in dismantling racism and white supremacy? One, two, three, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You go first. Okay. No, no worries. Uh, I, this is my, this is, I'm, I'm very happy to be a counselor um, by trade. Um, and I think they have a lot of work to do to live up to the code of ethics that we state, we, that we say and claim are ours. Because in our code of ethics, we're called to be advocates to affect, um, the circumstances that affect our clients, such as social injustices. In our preamble, um, we are called to be promoters of social justice. Mm. So not only should we be doing like these micro levels of advocacy, um, engaging in those, but macro levels. Because uh, the idea is that if we have clients that are having stress due to these social ills of the world, we need to also impact the social ills for the world mm. to help our clients. Amen. And Amen. if we don't do so, we're doing a disservice to our clients. Um, so I think um, recently the ACA came out and said, you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, but why did it take so long? <laughs> you know, like it was in the year 2020. Yeah. Um, and I have certain feelings about that, but I'm not going to throw anybody you know, extra shade. <laughs> but ultimately, I think we as counselors... We've gone too long with trying to align ourselves with apolitical or seeming apolitical because in our framework, we're not supposed to put our values and judgments on our clients. So when we enter that space, you know, doing our best to be apolitical, but 
truly, um, we can't, we can't be good counselors that are promoters of social justice um, and do the work our clients need and be apolitical. They, can, they can't exist. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. They cannot occupy the same space. No, not at all. Wow. I don't think, I love the, the tenants there. I don't think that, um, medicine has the same tendency. <laughs> you know, the, the one obviously that comes to mind is the main principle of the Hippocratic Oath, which is first, you know, harm. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there could be two reads of that. One is the read that we've been doing, which is do no harm being um, a synonym for do nothing. Mm. Right? Like, you don't want to enter into a discussion and potentially isolate or empower one group over another mm -hmm. so you say nothing right and i think that's ridiculously problematic um the other read of that could be first do no harm would be don't continue to harm the black and brown bodies that are being harmed by structural racism mm -hmm. and so in that do no harm you need to do something in order to do no harm um so i think we have a huge role in the system mm -hmm in dismantling structural racism. I think we have a lot of work to do in our own house first with respect to health and health care, but um, I think we, we we relate to the party. Good. I'm glad we're, some of us, some of us are finally here. Well, and I know you're one of the people leading the charge, so they're, oh, bless you. they're, in, they're in good hands <laughs> thus far. They're in good hands thus far. But anyway, uh, going back to you know, raising black sons. Um, let's hear what your parents have to say. About how I'm doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready for this. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hold your ego tight. First of all, you know, I, uh, probably like your mother, I'm biased. So I, I, I think you're doing a great job um, uh, with, with Nas and raising him and, and the challenges uh, being professional and, and, and the challenges that he's probably are experiencing uh, uh, at, at, in his environment. Uh, the thing that would concern me the most is that in his school environment, I, I think it's a very protective environment. Uh, the, the thing that I would probably caution you in Wayne as far as in, in raising him is that son like don't get too comfortable because all you know all white folks ain't like this you know uh, you get in and, and I've been in some parts of of the country where I mean you can just see it on their face so like just don't get get too comfortable and remind yourself you know, I may be this or that, you know, I may be a scholar, I may be a professional, but for some people, especially white people, it don't matter. You know, you, you still a, a black man, you know, and, and for me and for us, we don't like that. You are preparing them for racist environment. I think Nas can tell you more about your study than a lot of people, you know, after they even read. Um, I think his 
the incident he had in Michigan, ever since that happened, you've been right on in preparing him that some parents teach kids hate. And it was the incident when he was at the child care center and the little boy said he couldn't play with him because he was black and he was four years old. And so his defense was, well, I'll just pretend that I'm not. But you broke it down and explained to him what was going on at four years old in a way that he could understand it. So your mom thinks you're doing well, but your father, not so much. (laughs) From a man who just professed to us his colorblind approach to parenting, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. Yeah. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, you should be. You definitely (laughs) should be. You should be insulted, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So if he thinks I'm doing poorly, I mean, we need to go straight to the source and ask, ask the kid. See how he thinks I'm doing. There we go. We can. <laughs> we'll, we'll, let's, let's get him on. But um, so I'm just curious to hear from your mouth. Uh, what are things you're doing to prepare your son um, or suggest that our listeners do to prepare their children? Yeah. I mean, for my son, I was hoping that I didn't have to talk to him about his own racist experience so early. Like, of course, we would have to talk about race and racism um, at that point, but I would have done it in a very different way than I had to do it when he was four and experienced racism for the first time. Um, So I I think I've tried to do a whole bunch of different things. One is just having a conversation at his level that he feels comfortable with about the things that have happened in the past, like Mm -hmm. to our people in this country, to him, to mom, to dad. and go from there. There are books that I've gotten that we've read together and we talk about it and we debrief. Um, The other things that are a little more subtle is I make sure that we're reading and seeing images, positive images of black folks Mm. and and people of color. Because like we've talked about this kind of subtle or implicit way of parenting is actually, those messages are getting through too. So I'm making sure he's got images, beautiful images of black folks in his room on his shelves, on our walls. Um, We talk about it. We watch movies about the achievements of of Black people. And I think that that's important too. Mm. Um, Yeah, that makes me think of like this post that was circulating on Instagram that was this um, beautiful Black girl, um, darker skin, was getting her hair done. And she was looking kind of at herself, I think like in a selfie-facing camera or whatever. And she was like, I'm ugly. Um, and the person doing her hair starts saying, like, why are you ugly? And the girl starts to cry and tries to empower and show that she's beautiful. But it makes me think of all the messages little black kids receive Mm -hmm. early on. Um, like, there's a psychological doll experiment where it's, like, rate the, who's the good kid, who's the bad kid, Mm -hmm. and the darker-skinned children. Both black kids and white kids rank the darker-skinned children as the ones that are bad. And so these messages get messages can get internalized early and so I'm glad that my little nephew is seeing images um, outside of those things and getting a counter message absolutely Yeah. any other things that you suggest that our listeners do or that are maybe more age appropriate because your son is younger 
So do you think you'll have kind of different approaches as he gets older, different kind of talks? I don't know that my approach will be different. Like, I think we try to use a whole bunch of different ways to have the conversation. But I think the content of those conversations, the content of those books, the content of those movies will be different. They'll be more more accurate in some ways and have, um, you know, have some language in there that can better explain um, some of the things that have happened and will happen um, in the future. So I think our methods will probably be similar, but um, will be more age appropriate for sure. Let's hear more about what our parents actually did. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, they graded you. Let's hear. <laughs> Let's hear what they did. What I can recall is that I had a talk with Nevin about folk he hung with that didn't have any hue or any melon and how melon and and how if they told him how they can do things and get away with it but he would be treated differently so try to get show talk to him so that he could prepare himself for hanging around folks that didn't do awful things and if they did awful things know when to walk away because you're not going to get the same treatment okay let's give you back your professor hat (laughs) since they graded you what are your thoughts on the intentional things mom did Um, I think mom did a great job of exposing us to all different types of professions, of all different types of careers and dreams and opportunities that existed for us and had people of color in those positions. Mm -hmm. So she intentionally took us to black doctors and dentists and did all of those things to let us know like the sky was the limit for us. And I think that was awesome. And I think for you specifically preparing you for um, racism and sitting you down, having a conversation, I think is necessary. Mm. Um, I can't say for the things that she did for me. I think for her in raising you, I'd give her an A. I mean, this is an outsider looking in, so I'd love to hear what you would give her. Um, But for her preparation of bias for me, I think the class got dropped. <laughs> oh, gosh. Dang, dog. The teacher never showed up? The teacher never showed up. Oh, gosh. Usually that's a good thing. We get to leave class early. <laughs> I just leave, but that's rough. Um, and she was a great parent. Yeah. Preparation of bias, the racism piece. I don't, and not just her. I think dad, too. Yeah. Your dad was colorblind anyway. So. <laughs> For both. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I think. Mom and I, we were having all those talks, like, um, a bunch. Uh, we had talks of, I would come to her and I'd say, Mom, if someone calls me the N-word, like, what should I do? What can I do? Is it okay if I hit the person? Should I defend myself? And, um, other, other conversations about driving and, that talk around what neighborhoods that I can and can't drive into. 
and this talk that she just mentioned about like the realities for me are very different than my white peers and going to a predominantly white school like knowing that um knowing that like if they're goofing off or they're doing something um i'm not going to get the treat mm -hmm. same treatment that they do and i think that has carried into my understanding today like I tell my friends, like, sometimes, like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like y'all trying to do what? And I think we laugh because, I mean, it's true, but when I think about, like, for example, you know, um, even, like, looking at homes, right, and trying to, um, I I'm, I'm, was working with my friend, and we are like, looking at um, a, a home or space, and immediately I thought of Ahmaud Arbery. Mm very um and like oh like wait we can't just be looking into mm. houses and at houses right like it means something different mm. for me to do it wow um and that could mean something different but yeah so i'm very aware mom and i yeah we definitely had those talks um but it seems like she didn't have those talks with you unfortunately mm -mm. Do y'all think if she was parenting us in today's society that she'd switch it up? Let's see. I would have. Um, I still think I dealt with personality as well as gender. I don't think I ever, I mean, you were spicy and I think you were a thinker, you knew how to handle yourself. Whereas Nevin's hot-headed, he and he has he had a temper, you know, and I just felt like I had to prepare him for the police, I had to prepare prepare him for white folk, yeah. I had to prepare him for black folk too, yeah. you know. So um, I would do the same. I would do the same, and I would say the same to any mother today with a black son. Um, daughter, you can have a, a this similar conversation, um, uh, but I don't think it has to be as more in depth, depending on the personality of the daughter. Like I said, for you, I mean, you just always was pretty centered and you know, hate, you knew hate when you saw hate and you dealt with it a little differently, but. Nevin was always hot-headed. I didn't want him to end up punching somebody. And like I said earlier, I felt like I had to prepare my black son, but I really didn't feel like I had to prepare you. Um, because I think society accept black women more than they accept black men. Wait. Did she just, did she just say that? Yeah, we gotta hear more. We don't have time. Oh. Okay, next episode. Flesh and Bold is produced by yours truly, Drs. Nia J. Hurd Garris and Nevin J. Hurd. Thank you to Wayne Garris for helping with editing, music by Poddington Bear, and a big special thanks to our parents for joining us. Stay up to date with the latest news and extra content for Flesh and Bold by following us on Twitter and Instagram at 
flesh, the letter N, bold, one word. Check us out next month for Raising Black.